are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. How many of you like cold cereal? Raise your hand. I want to see those hands, especially of the children and teens. Go ahead. You're going to have trouble believing this, but cold cereal is my most favorite food. I love cold cereal. Now, I confess, primarily the sugary cereals. I love those. Lucky Charms, Fruity Pebbles, Cocoa Puffs. I love that kind of stuff. Now, it's not just that I like the milk and the cereal. I like the ease. There's only three steps. You grab the ingredients and the utensils, you pour it into a bowl, and you eat. Without supervision, I can eat up to six bowls a day. My wife holds me back only because of my age and my inability to burn the calories I once did. But I love the sweetness and the simplicity of cold cereal. The challenge is we all know that sugary cereals, they don't build muscle and they certainly don't lead to health like a T-bone steak might. I mean, all of us probably like steak of some kind. But here's the truth. When it comes to the Bible, we love cold cereal-type passages. We love cold cereal-type sermons. We like them short, sweet, and simple. That's what we like. But the truth is, that's not how we build strong disciples. As a church, we're building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. And in order to do that, we need strong disciples. And we only grow strong disciples by ensuring that we spend time in those portions of God's word that angels fear to tread in. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. Some of you may want me to take shorter passages of scripture. Well, I can assure you after these six weeks, you won't be saying that to me anymore. Because these passages, they are deep. And they are challenging, some of the most difficult in the entire Bible, which explains why most pastors and Christians stop reading after Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we're going to have some tough, tough T-bone steak to digest. But if we attempt to digest it, we will grow strong. If we seek to avoid it, We'll have spiritual indigestion, and we'll have poor health. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And while you're turning there, let me just give a quick bit of information. So in Daniel chapters 1 through 6, we have history. In Daniel chapter 7 through 12, we have prophecy. Now, you may be saying, oh, no, stop right there, Keith. I'm not interested in that prophecy gobbledygook. I understand that. But here's what you need to know. 27% of our Bible is prophecy. That's over a quarter of our Bible. So if God did not care about prophecy, he would not have put so much prophecy in Scripture. Now, Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are not just prophetic They're what's called apocalyptic writing or apocalyptic literature. What that means is this passage that we'll look at today and the passages that we'll look at over the next five weeks, 
They're written in symbolic or picture form. Now, for many of us, we we love that because we're visual learners. Here's the reality. Pictures give us a window into understanding. That's why we will say a picture tells what? A thousand words. That's just a part of our vernacular. Now, what we need to understand is apocalyptic literature doesn't give us all the information that we might like to know. And that means in the next six weeks, some of you are going to have some challenges with me. You're either going to say, Keith, you missed the clear teaching in this passage according to me. Or you're going to say, Keith, you may have gone beyond what I can see in the actual text according to me. The truth is, we're all going to differ on passages that deal with the end times. You know that, and I know that. But what I need you to know is, I've studied this for not years, but decades. And so I respect your view. I admire you for holding the view that you do. But don't think I'm going to hold every detail of your view. Don't feel the need to send me YouTube links or social media posts written by end times experts. That's really not necessary. I can assure you I'm familiar with the views that you espouse. What I love about you, though, is you love going deep into Scripture. So I have confidence in you that you're going to love Daniel chapters 7 through 12. And because you are people who love to study the Word, Our challenge will be we'll have to apply some of these passages in a way that maybe is different than how we've seen them before. So let's just ask the Lord that he would give us his mind and his perspective and that where there is disagreement, we will agree to disagree agreeably. Daniel 7 is wonderful because Daniel 7 is said to be the most important passage of prophecy in the Old Testament. And those that know Daniel 7 will say, certainly it's the most important chapter in Daniel. Some would say it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. So you decided to tune in or to come out in person for the right chapter of Daniel. Thank you so much. What we're going to find is heaven rules human history. That's all you have to remember. That the God of heaven, he rules He rules human history. As we've said, history is his story. So now let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1 with the setting to make sure that we know where this passage is headed. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. So right out of the gate, we need to understand that chapter 7 breaks the flow of chronological accounts. And some of you immediately grasp that because you're like, King Belshazzar? King Bel? Didn't we read about him previously? Yes, we did. He saw the writing on the wall. Well, where was that? That was back in Daniel chapter 5. So if we're dealing with a dream that Daniel received that's in the first year of King Bel, 
that took place prior to chapter 5. So between chapters 4 and 5. Daniel is in his late 60s. He's not in his mid-80s anymore. And what we also need to know is this particular dream, it was given to another king, King Nebuchadnezzar, King Neb, back in Daniel chapter 2. That dream was written from a human perspective. It was written from our perspective. Daniel chapter 7 is the same dream, but it's written from God's perspective. It's revealed in a way that's different than chapter 2, which was a golden statue. Now we will find in Daniel 7 another way of communicating a dream or a vision. I'll save the suspense and build upon it, but just know we're dealing with the same type of dream, the same meaning within the dream. So now we see that what Daniel has done is he has said, the prophet, the prophecy, the whole of scripture, it can be tested, it can be tried, because he's Revealing his dream, and then in the second half of this passage, the dream will be interpreted. This is one of the things I love about Scripture. Scripture can be tested and tried. God doesn't say, I said it. You need to believe it. That settles it. No, he, he doesn't think like our bumper sticker theology. God wants us to bring our questions to him. He wants us to express our doubts and seek him for answers because he'll reveal them in his word and his word is always validated and it's always vindicated. Heaven rules human history. Now let's look at verses 2 and 3 where the dream begins. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, this sounds like Daniel has had a burrito gut bomb, a rocket type of energy drink, and then he's decided to get on a roller coaster and then go to bed. I mean, you want to talk about some serious spiritual indigestion. I don't know what's going on but he is going to dream some pretty crazy things. And this is really the summary of his dream in verses two and three. So let's just define three quick terms. First of all, in verse two, the four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven is a reference to angels who are bringing about judgment on the kingdoms of the world. That's the four winds of heaven. Now, they are stirring up the great sea. Now, usually this was a reference to the Mediterranean Sea, but here it's speaking, if you will, symbolically of Gentile nations. The sea is regularly called nations or people in the Old Testament. In verse 3, you can see four great beasts. The four great beasts are defined later in chapter 7 as kings, and then ultimately kingdoms, because every king will lead a kingdom. So that's how we define these three concepts from the very beginning. And this will help us to make sense of things. So we've got Daniel having this dream and then revealing that dream. Verses 4 through 8 are going to tell us about the beasts. 
Now, for us to appreciate these beasts, I'm going to have a screen go, uh, a slide go up on the screen for you to take a look at as we walk through these four beasts. This will at least give you the beasts in picture form as Daniel experienced this dream. So first of all, in verse 4, we read, The first beast was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. So here we have a lion that has wings like an eagle. This is a reference to the Babylonian Empire. If you study Babylon, you know that they used the symbols of the lion and the eagle. And so here we have both symbols and both animals together. Every nation tends to have an animal as their symbol. Have you noticed that? In the United States, we have an animal that's the symbol of our nation. What is that? The eagle, good. What about Russia? The bear. What about Britain? The lion. Yeah, so you can see all the nations of the world will use symbols, many more than I have time to go through, and they're symbols of the animal kingdom often. So here we have Babylon. And Babylon was powerful, as we know from the book of Daniel, and yet Babylon was brought low. And that's what verse 4 talks about. Do you see how the lion's wings are plucked? And then the lion is lifted up from ultimately all fours, and he's put on two feet like a man, and he's given a human mind once again? That should immediately cause you to think of a passage in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, where King Neb ends up defying God, developing a theo-ego, thinking that he is the man, and God turns him into an animal, and he decides to graze with the Angus. He's on all fours. Eventually, he humbles himself before the Lord. The Lord stands him up on two feet, and he gives his mind back to him again. So that's Babylon. And Babylon, as we know, was defeated. Now, in verse 5, we have our second beast. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side. And three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus said to it, arise, devour much meat. So here we have a bear. And the bear is lifted up on one side. This is a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians came in and they conquered Media and the side was lifted up in picture form. Medo-Persian Empire. You can see in verse 5 that there's three particular ribs in the mouth of this bear. What could that be in reference to? Well, from our history, we know it's likely a reference to Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. That's who Medo-Persia conquered. And they conquered and continued to conquer. And that's why we see arise, devour much meat. They conquered for 200-some years and had a great empire of which Daniel was a part after Babylon. Our third beast is mentioned in verse 6. 
After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and beast. the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, not even Dr. Seuss could have come up with this particular animal. I mean, you've got a leopard with four wings. That's twice the normal number of wings. Lepers, leopards are fast as all get out. But then you add four wings to this leopard, and it's emphasizing just sheer speed. This is the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great, who some of you are familiar with, he came in and he took out the Medo-Persian Empire in just a few months. And by the age of 30, he had conquered the entire known world. Talk about the great. The Greece, the Grecian Empire, the Greeks were incredibly effective and powerful. Now, if you notice in verse 6, you've got four heads and dominion was given to it. After Alexander the Great passed, four other kings and nations raised up. And this is something that our history books once, once again tell us about. And so here Daniel is writing a few hundred years before the events of Alexander the Great, and he is predicting what will take place. Heaven rules human history. It's uncanny. Every time we have a historical issue or a possible discrepancy in God's word, what do we need to do? We need to test God's word. We need to test history. And I can tell you who wins in the end. Heaven rules human history. God's word will always be validated. It will always be vindicated. You can bank on it. Now we're going to arrive at the fourth beast, and that's the focus of this entire passage. In verses 7 and 8, Daniel writes, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had, a large, it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different. This is going to be used three times in our passage, so you might want to put a mark or a highlight next to different. And it, this beast, this empire, was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, I'm going to stop there before dealing with verse 8. We have here the empire that you can probably guess, the Roman Empire, the empire that was bloodthirsty, that was savage, and they ruled and reigned for a thousand years or so. And everything that's described in verse 7 really depicts the Roman Empire. Verse 8 now is going to explain something that is dealing in the future. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. First, we need to ask, what are these horns? I mean, going back to verse 7 and then verse 8 emphasizes it. In Scripture, horns represent kings and kingdoms. So what we have here is a nation that will follow ancient Rome. 
Some scholars call it the revived Roman Empire. It's not in your Bible, but that's the term that's typically used. It's a nation that will come about in the end times that will consist of 10 nations. But the focus here is not on the 10 nations. The focus here is on the little horn. The little horn is the one that we know as the Antichrist. Now, many of you have heard of the Antichrist. That is God's enemy and Israel's enemy during the tribulation period. He is a man, but he is a very cocky and arrogant man. He's raised up as a king, and he immediately takes out three of the ten nations. Now, all we know is this is on the continent of Europe. It's in that part of the world. We don't know a whole lot more about the revived Roman Empire. We just know that there will be an Antichrist who will come onto the scene with the goal of making life miserable for Israel. So now we're going to see what happens to the little horn and what happens even to the beasts, if you will. What's beautiful about verses 9 through 14 is they're placed right in the middle of this long chapter. And the reason they're placed in the middle is for the purpose of emphasis. Writers will often do that in the Old and New Testaments. They will have bookends, if you will. They'll develop what's called a literary sandwich of sorts. And then they'll place right in the middle of the passage the key to understanding the passage. Now, I'll explain more as we walk through. But notice in verses 9 and 10, we basically have split-screen technology before it was popularized. We have Daniel looking down on the events of earth, but now he starts looking up to heaven. And there is a split screen like you would have on your TV or on your computer. Daniel writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Now, I would circle that word thrones or underline the word thrones. That deals with sovereignty. It deals with kingship. There were thrones, plural, set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture, or his robe, was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Here we have the Ancient of Days. This title is only used here in the entire Old Testament. While there's a little bit of dispute, those of us who are conservative Christians recognize this is God the Father. And this is the passage that people go to to see God as some old, elderly, aging man. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, God is eternal. He is outside of space and time, but he's a spirit. So when we talk about a white robe and white hair, we're using language that we understand, but a spirit, God himself, does not have white hair or a white robe. This is just to demonstrate his purity, his holiness, 
his eternality. Now look further as we walk through verses 9 and 10. His throne is ablaze with flames, with fire. Fire is typically dealing with purification or judgment. In this passage, it's dealing with the latter. It's dealing with judgment. That God sits on his throne, and his throne is a throne of judgment. Heaven rules human history. Now look at verse 10 and 9. They deal with the fact that God's throne has wheels. This is odd. But in the ancient world, because thrones were difficult to move, they actually did possess wheels, believe it or not. But this is a picture for you and me that God's judgment moves to and fro, and he judges everyone everywhere. His judgment ultimately wins the day. And then Daniel talks about the angels. And there's angels everywhere, thousands upon thousands, myriads of myriads. There's millions and billions and trillions of angels who are simply ministering spirits who will answer God's will immediately and they will do it perfectly. That's the scene that Daniel sees. And then the court is in session and judgment begins. All of this is in the future. Now, I want to show you something beautiful that Daniel does. In most of our Bibles, we'll see that some part of verses 9 through 14 are set off in poetry. I believe that verses 9 and 10 are poetic and verses 13 and 14 are poetic. Verses 11 and 12 in the midst of this sandwich are not poetic. The best English version that displays this is a version that many of you use, the English Standard Version. So if you're using that Bible, yeah, they nailed this passage. So look at verse 11. This is fast-forwarding to the end. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the beautiful, boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Did you see how Daniel snuck that in? That the little horn is actually the beast. Revelation 13 verse 1 calls the beast the Antichrist. Calls the Antichrist the beast. Isn't it intriguing that we've been talking about four beasts that have been like what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.18, there are other Antichrists before the capital A Antichrist. All of these beastly kingdoms are ruled and reigned by Satan and by his purposes. And yet, what's the message of this text? Despite how it looks from our perspective, heaven rules human history. So if you look at what happens in the end, Satan is thrown along with the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire where he will burn for eternity. Revelation 19 verse 20. The end of the story is given in verse 11. Verse 12 is a parenthetical statement. It looks back. As for the rest of the beasts, in other words, the kingdoms that we've looked at, their dominion was taken away. But as an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So the kingdoms that we looked at, they were merged into other kingdoms that assumed them. 
I'm always asked what I think is going to happen to the United States in prophecy. Verse 12 tells you what I think. I don't think we're going to be standing as a nation. I don't think we will have the arrogant pride that we do now. I think we will be merged into another nation because another nation overtakes us. I don't know when. I don't know exactly how. But trust me, that's what's coming. Verses 13 and 14 bring back good news. So we have good news, bad news, or we could argue good news, and then good news. We've got God, the Antichrist, and then we'll have to see what verses 13 and 14 say. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we're referencing the Son of Man. That's what Daniel sees. Now, it's fascinating. If you read what scholars have to say about the Son of Man, they will tell you it's a human, just your typical ordinary man. It's an angel because this is apocalyptic literature, or it's speaking of a plurality of people, the entirety of Israel. But I would argue, not just from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament, that this is the Messiah. And the reason we can determine that is because he is with the clouds. In the Old Testament, some 70 times, God is seen with the clouds or riding on the clouds. Whoever this person is, he's divine. But then when you look at the passage more closely, you can see that the Ancient of Days gives judgment over to him. And then on top of that, all people worship him. That's an even better translation than serve him. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the Son of Man is. Now, how else might we know that? Because, make a mental note or write this down. Jesus' favorite designation about himself is the Son of Man. That's his favorite name. Because he identifies with us, and yet he demonstrates that he's the one true God as well. He is the God-man. He is fully human. He is fully divine. Here we have Jesus bringing about his purposes given to him by God the Father that he will be able to have all glory, all dominion, and all power. Heaven rules human history. That's what this text is saying. In verses 15 through 28, we have the interpretation of the vision. Now, because we've done our interpretive work already, this is going to go really fast. Beginning in verse 15, Daniel writes, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my head kept alarming me. Now, you have to ask the question, why? I mean, we've just dealt with the ancient of days, the Antichrist being thrown into the lake of fire, and then the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, being given all dominion. Daniel is a Hebrew, and he knows what Israel will have to go through during the period called the Tribulation. That is the last three and a half years 
of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation, where Satan will pull out all the stops. Daniel sees this in a dream, and he's alarmed. In verse 16, we read, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Now, if you're a careful Bible student, circle number 17 and number 18. Circle those two verses. Because that is the key to this text. This is what the text has been building up to. These great beasts, remember, the kings and the kingdoms, which are four in number, the four kings who will arise from the earth, but, remember how we've said the most important word in Scripture is but? The greatest verses in Scripture have but, but the saints or the holy ones of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now there's debate. Are the saints or the holy ones angels or are they God's people? I opt for God's people. And I'll explain that more as we go further. What the Lord is saying through Daniel is Jesus Christ will rule and reign. He already rules and reigns over human history. But one day Israel will be given promises that were made to them in the Old Testament and they will one day be fulfilled. And then the New Testament also helps us understand that we too, the church, we will rule and reign with Jesus for all of eternity. Now look with me at verses 19 and following. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. That was the Roman Empire and then the revived Roman Empire, which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. In other words, the Antichrist, that braggart, that one who's going to take out three nations, and that one who will ultimately attempt to be worshipped as God. In verse 21, Daniel writes, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Remember, this is at the end of the age when the tribulation period is going on. I don't believe that we will be there, but I hold that with a very open hand because I could easily be wrong. Regardless, we know God's people will be there, Israelites and Gentiles who will believe in Jesus. And Satan and his false prophet and beast, his unholy trinity, they're kicking tail and taking names. I mean, they're just destroying the church. It seems like they're winning. They're overpowering the church. But what do we know? Heaven rules human history. We know about the Ancient of Days. We know about the Son of Man. So no matter how it feels right now, God will ultimately be victorious. And this is the beauty of this passage. Verse 22, until, circle that word, until. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Praise God. 
we're going to be a part of that one day. Thus he said the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. That's what the tribulation period is going to be like. It's often called hell on earth. And that's what it is. Because Satan is wreaking havoc all over the earth. But verse 24 says, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. This is the Antichrist. He will speak out against the Most High. In other words, the Antichrist will speak out against God. Anti means against. He is the antithesis of who Jesus is. He will wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations to times and law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, the alterations in times and in the law, that's most likely referring to Jewish holidays, holy days, feasts, and festivals. Now, the more difficult aspect is time, times, and half a time. Some would say that's just completion. That's three and a half and Half of seven is three and a half, and therefore this is any number of time, any duration of time. However, I would argue that time refers to one year, times refers to two years, and then half a time refers to what? Half a year, three and a half years. Now, when we look into Revelation, what do we have? 1,260 days and then 42 months. That equates to three and a half years. The best commentary on Revelation is the book of Daniel. Whether it's three and a half years or less or more is irrelevant. Here's what's being contrasted. God's everlasting kingdom and a short duration of time. What will the Antichrist do? I want you to highlight this in verse 25. He will wear down or literally wear out the saints. That's what Satan loves to do. He can't take our soul. He can't even take our lives unless the Lord gives him permission. But he can wear us out. He can wear us down. When you sense that, turn to the Son of Man. Ask the Ancient of Days to help you through this difficult season of your life. Verse 26 is so beautiful. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Goodbye, Antichrist. You're thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation says you're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And then 27, what we've been building up to, the apex, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So here we have, in verse 27, two uses of dominion. The last use, the plural, is the seventh use of dominion. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. What God is saying is heaven rules. Heaven rules. It rules human history. 
God has dominion now. He will enjoy dominion for all of eternity, and we will enjoy it with him. So here's your choice, church. You can either fixate and focus on beasts or thrones. Because one day you may find yourself on one of those thrones, ruling and reigning because you've been faithful to the Lord Jesus. Why focus on beasts? Why focus on that which is going to be utterly destroyed? Focus in on the thrones. Now verse 28 concludes in an odd fashion. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming. Me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Did you catch that? This says the very same thing that verse 15 said when Daniel starts getting the interpretation from the angel. So in light of all this great stuff, why is Daniel alarmed? Why is he keeping this to himself? Why is he hiding it in his heart? Because he's not one of those who goes out and gets caught up in end times gobbledygook. He knows the greater call is to reveal that which he does understand and what he does know and keep it close to his heart in a humble fashion and reflect upon these things and not start up a YouTube channel, get on social media, choose to write books and hit the conference conferences talking about highfalutin, controversial things in a dogmatic fashion. That's what we think of when we think of eschatology, the study of last things. We think of eschatomaniacs, as I call them. They're obsessed with eschatology, the study of last things, and what Daniel wants to be about, and what we want to be about is building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. What we're all looking for is peace. And I want to show you a slide quickly. It's a slide that's from the United Nations in New York City. And you can see the marble wall. You can take a moment just to read this particular expression. I'll tell you this while you're reading it. It is a portion of Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and it emphasizes peace. They don't credit it being Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It's only become known later as the Isaiah wall. And it's all about the nations becoming at peace with one another. And they conveniently leave out Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4a, the first half of the verse that says it'll only come about through God and ultimately the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the world wants peace, but they want human peace. And human peace is artificial, and it doesn't last, and it's temporary. It is very temporary. We can't have peace without the Prince of Peace. It's impossible. Peace only comes through Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection, through who he is. And if we try to circumvent that, we will find what I would call hell on earth. If we want heaven brought down to earth, it will come through Jesus Christ. Heaven rules human history. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to fear. We've read the end of the book, and God wins. That's what's glorious. 
No matter what you're going through today, no matter what I'm going through, we have an eternity where we will enjoy intimacy with God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be in eternity with one another with perfect motives, with perfect attitudes, with perfect thoughts, with perfect words, because we will be glorified and we will be like Christ. Human peace will not bring lasting peace, only the Prince of Peace. Will you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that while it may be difficult to understand at times, we're confident that you are in control of human history. We're banking our eternal destinies on that fact. Father, for anyone here or anyone watching online who has not believed in the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God, the one who has brought eternal life to us, the one who simply asked that we would acknowledge our sin and that we would turn from our sin to the Savior, that for those who have never placed their faith in Christ, that we would do so today. Today is the day of salvation. These are wicked days that we live in. Don't leave eternity to chance. Trust in the Son of Man. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior. Help us to revel in him. Help us to make much of him. And thank you that you've included us in your family and that we will spend eternity with you and that we will experience ruling and reigning. Lord, we look forward to that day. In the meantime, may you fix our gaze upon yourself. May we not look to ourselves, may we look to you, the ancient of days, and may we look to your son, the son of man. We love you, we give you the praise, in Christ's name, amen.